we've been talking about the fruit of the Spirit. And um, we're going to head out there today again. Galatians chapter 5. We're talking about perfection. I, uh, I just want to tell you a little story about perfection. I know none of us are perfect. We probably think that uh, there's no way that we can live up to what we've been looking at in the Word of God. Once upon a time, just imagine in your mind, the perfect man and the perfect woman met. After a perfect courtship, they had a perfect wedding. And their life was, of course, perfect. One snowy, stormy Christmas Eve, this perfect couple was driving their perfect car, an SUV, along, with, along a winding road when they noticed someone on the side of the road in great distress. And being the perfect couple, they stopped to help. There stood Santa Claus with a huge bundle of toys. Not wanting to disappoint any children on the eve of Christmas, the perfect couple loaded Santa and his toys into their vehicle, and soon they were driving along delivering the toys. Unfortunately, the driving conditions deteriorated quite rapidly, and the perfect couple and Santa Claus had an accident. Only one of them survived the accident. Now here's the riddle. Who was the survivor? Want the answer? The perfect woman survived. Why? She's the only one who ever really existed in the first place. <laughs> Everyone knows there is no Santa Claus. And there is no such thing as the perfect man, right? Okay, ladies, the joke's over for you. Now block your ears. Men, you keep listening. So if there's no perfect man and there's no Santa Claus, the perfect woman must have been driving. This explains why there was an accident. I think that when we're, we're talking about the things of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, we get under this conviction that we're not quite living up to what God wants us to do as Christians because we're not perfect. The perfect person doesn't exist. So what do we do? What do we do? There's a story, an old legend that, about an Eskimo fisherman who came to town every Saturday afternoon. He always brought two of his dogs with him. One was white, the other was black. And he had taught them to fight on command. Every Saturday afternoon in the town square, the people would gather and these two dogs would fight it out and the fishermen would take bets. On one Saturday, the black dog would win. Other Saturday, the white dog would win. But the fisherman always won because he knew which one was going to win. His friends began to ask him how he did it. He said, I starved one and I feed the other. The one I feed always wins because he's the stronger one. Every true Christ follower should identify with this story because there are two natures inside of us which are constantly warring for mastery and control over us. Which one will win depends expressly on which one you and I are going to feed. If we feed our spiritual nature by yielding ourselves over to the control and the power of the Holy Spirit, 
His power will dominate our lives and we will bear good fruit. However, if we feed our human fleshly nature and starve the spiritual, we will succumb to our passionate appetites and sinful inclinations and our flesh will begin to rule and the spirit will be unproductive. Following me? That's precisely why the Apostle Paul is so adamant in his words to the Galatian church and why those same words should capture our attention today. Feed the flesh and sin will flourish. Submit to the Spirit's control and fruit will abound. Turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. Let's uh, kind of refresh our memories about the text that we're looking at. Verse 16, I'm going to read an, an extended version here. Galatians 5, 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, for these two are in opposition to one another. So that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ, Jesus, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us then also walk by the Spirit. Great text. A couple of weeks ago, we began to unearth this fruit of the Spirit and discover how it relates to the Spirit-filled life. So I want to review a little bit to catch you up again for those of you that weren't here. First thing that we saw was that spiritual fruit is the expectation of God's Son. Jesus said in John 15, 16 that He chose us and put us into the world to bear fruit, fruit that will endure and not spoil. The criteria, however, for enjoying a productive life in the Spirit and seeing His fruit multiplied in our lives is twofold, however, and it's absolutely crucial that we understand it. The first thing is, is that spiritual fruit requires a right relationship to Christ. In John 15, verses 4 and 5, it says that we must abide in Him. We cannot bear fruit apart from Him. You can't do it yourself. Without the vine, the branch is absolutely useless. You can't do it by following a bunch of rules. That's Paul's whole point in Galatians 6. You're not going to bear fruit by following the law. Walk by the Spirit and you will. Second criteria is spiritual fruit demands a right relationship not only to God's Son, but also to God's Word. We must not only abide in Christ, but we must obey Christ. Amen? Apart from our abiding in Christ and his adherence to his word, there will be no spiritual fruit. So God's expectation for his people is that we exemplify the fruit of the Spirit, and the fruit of the Spirit is cultivated then in the garden of obedience. 
And you and I will never experience God's power in our life apart from abiding in obedience. Abiding in obedience, those two things. Just keep that in mind. Spiritual fruit, then, is not only the expectation of God's Son, but the second thing we discovered last time was that spiritual fruit is the experience of God's people. And we began to list the nine aspects of the fruit of the Spirit, which is produced in the life of, now mark it, every believer. Not just super spiritual ones. It's supposed to be every single one who names the name of Christ. They're not separate fruits, we discovered, that are developed independent of each other, but they are a unified cluster. Every believer has every aspect in some degree. All of the different aspects are to be found in all believers. Unlike the gifts, the fruit's a whole different deal. So in essence, the fruit of the Spirit is the life of Christ becoming visible in the conduct and the character of every Christian. It's the evidence that God is fulfilling what he promised in us. And what did he promise? That he is at work through his indwelling spirit, conforming us to the image of his son. All right? Romans chapter 8, verse 29. For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son so that his son would be the firstborn with many brothers and sisters. The fruit of the Spirit, then, is simply the character traits of Christ spiritually, relationally, and personally worked out in our lives. Now, to help us see them in a more practical light, I started to break these things down into nine, these nine aspects of the fruit of the Spirit into three sections of three, each of them expressing a different focus of our spiritual relationships. And we began with only one last time, love, which is really the whole umbrella over all of these nine. And the first three comprise the spiritual aspects and virtues of the fruit. So let's just review love a minute. The fruit of the Spirit is love, Paul says. It's the direct result and the identifying mark of every single person who has an intimate relationship to God. Or at least it should be. Because, as the Bible clearly says, the love of God has been poured out in our hearts. How? Through what? Through the Holy Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. That's Romans 5, 5. Love flavors every other element of this group. It's the supreme end of, of all spirit-directed activity and attitude, according to Paul. Joy is love's strength. Peace is love's security. Patience is love's endurance. Kindness is love's conduct. Goodness is love's character. Faithfulness is love's confidence. Gentleness is love's humility. And self-control is love's victory. Fruit of the Spirit is love. Both the church and the world crave it. And they need it. 1 John 4, verse 7. My beloved friends, let us continue to love each other since love comes from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and experiences a relationship with God. The person who refuses to love doesn't know the first thing about God. Because God is love. So you can't know him if you don't love. 
This is how God showed his love for us. God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. This is the kind of love we're talking about. Not that we once upon a time loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to clear away our sins and the damage they've done to our relationship with God. My dear friends, John writes, if God loved us like this, we certainly ought to love each other. In the prologue to his book, Leadership Jazz, Max Dupree wrote of a time in their life where they had a little granddaughter that had some problems. You might relate to this. Esther, my wife, and I have a granddaughter, he wrote, named Zoe, the Greek word for life. She was born prematurely and weighed one pound, seven ounces, so small that my wedding ring could slide up her arm to her shoulder. That's small. The neonatologist who first examined her told us that she had a 5 to 10% chance of living. Three days. When Esther and I scrubbed up for our first visit and saw Zoe in the neonatal intensive care unit, she had two IVs in her navel, one in her foot, a monitor on each side of her chest and a respirator tube and feeding tube in her mouth. To complicate matters, Zoe's biological father had jumped ship the month before Zoe was born. Realizing this, a wise and caring nurse named Ruth gave me my instructions. He said, for the next several months at least, you are the surrogate father. I want you to come to the hospital every single day to visit Zoe. And when you come, I want you to rub her body and her legs and arms with the tip of your finger and while you're caressing her, you should tell her over and over and over again how much you love her. Because she has to be able to connect your voice to your touch. And then Max writes this. He says, God knew that we also needed both his voice and his touch. So he gave us not only the word of God, but he also gave us his son. And he gave us not only Jesus Christ, but also Jesus' body, the church. God's voice and touch say, I love you. I'll tell you something that happened to me this, this past week. I have a friend I went to high school with, with that I haven't seen in years and years. He has ALS. He's bedridden. Lou Gehrig's disease can't communicate, can't move, can't talk. All he can do is blink once for yes and barely shake his head for no. I went to visit him, spent an hour or so with him and his wife, a couple of hours with them, and very awkward to go into a room and be the only one that can speak. And not knowing where he is spiritually or anything like that, trying to figure out what to say, what road to go down, By the end of, at the end of the visit, I prayed for him and I put my hand on his arm and I looked in his eyes and I told him I loved him. Immediately, his eyes welled up with tears. And his lips began to quiver. And I remember in the instant before I said those three words, I love you, I remember the struggle that was going on in my mind between the prompting of the Holy Spirit to say it 
and my human nature or the devil or something or other that was causing me to doubt whether I should say it and shrink away from it. You see, people need to see Christ's love and they will see it and experience it through you and through me, through the church of Jesus Christ, when we say yes to the Spirit and we say no to our flesh and our fear. A bunch of us had the opportunity to visit with him again yesterday. A bunch of us high school friends, we gathered a group together that we haven't seen each other in years. And we all went and spent a couple hours with him. We laughed and we prayed and we again told him we loved him. People need to see that. And you're the only ones that have the power, if you have the Holy Spirit, to be able to really authentically show them. That's love. Joy. Joy's the next one in the list. Well, we live in the looming shadows of earthquakes and wars and famines and violence and the ever-present threat of global destruction. If there's anything that the world needs today is joy. Anything I need or you need is joy. Not superficial, outward, giddy, giggly, laugh till you drop kind of joy. You know, don't worry, be happy. But a deep, inward, exhilarating joy of the heart that comes from knowing that in spite of all the surroundings, it is well with our soul. Now you might ask, is that kind of joy possible? Only if it's produced by the Spirit in you. You're not going to manufacture that kind of stuff because people will see right through that in an instant. You'll see through it. You won't be able to keep, up, keep it up. It stems, true joy, from a confidence that a person has when he or she is in a right relationship with the Lord. Jesus spoke of this joy as the fruitful outcome of one who abides in Christ and adheres to his word. John chapter 15, verses 10 and 11. Jesus said, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you so that, what? My joy may be in you and your joy would be made full, complete, whole, overflowing. Divine joy is full joy. It cannot be humanly manufactured. It can only be spirit-produced. Unlike the happiness that most people pursue with a vengeance today as they strive for more money, healthier bodies, trendier clothes, and more comfortable living arrangements, the believer characterized by true spiritual joy is not dependent upon his or her circumstances. He or she is settled in the fact that as Nehemiah knew centuries before Christ, and he said that the joy of the Lord is your strength, right? Joy is strength. Lack of joy is emptiness. Joy is strength. That person can face any situation with a bold sort of confidence because he or she knows that God is in total control. Be sovereign. That kind of joy is not easily upended. It's not upended by a collapsing economy. It's not devastated by the loss of a job, the loss of good health, or even the loss of a loved one. Yeah, sure, people struggle, even Christians struggle with these things. But deep down inside, they're not shaken to the core 
as if all is lost. Because they have a vibrant relationship with Christ. It's the kind of joy that was manifested in the words of a grieving Christian father written just after his, his young believing son's death. He, he wrote these words. He said, there are tears in my eyes, but joy in my heart. Author Charles Allen put it this way. He said, just as all the water in the world cannot quench the fire of the Holy Spirit, neither can all the troubles and tragedies of the world overwhelm the joy which the Spirit brings into the human heart. Just a few hours before, Jesus was about to endure the most excruciating loneliness and traumatic pain in his life, earthly life. He looked into his disciples' eyes, and this is what he said. He said, truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. Here's the key. God brings joy into our lives by transforming us in our circumstances, not necessarily by transferring us out of them. Right? That's the kind of joy Paul referred to when he commanded, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say rejoice. That's what's what allowed Paul to write something as outrageous as these words, I am filled with comfort, I am overflowing with joy in all of our affliction. Read 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Look at the affliction that Paul suffered, and yet he could say that he, he had full joy. John Ortberg writes, True joy, as it turns out, comes only to those who have devoted their lives to something greater than personal happiness. Right? This is the most visible, it's most visible in, in extraordinary lives in saints and martyrs, but it is no less true for ordinary people like you and me. One test of authentic joy is its compatibility with pain. Now think about that. Joy in the world is always joy in spite of something. Our joy as Christians in this world as we live is always joy in spite of something. Joy is, as Karl Barth put it, a defiant nevertheless. I like that phrase. A defiant nevertheless. Set at a full stop against bitterness and resentment. I will have joy in spite of what I'm going through right now. Because it's something you choose. And I want to tell you, if you don't rejoice today, if you and I do not rejoice today, we will not rejoice at all. You know why? Because if we wait until conditions are perfect, we're going to be waiting until we die. Right? We will. If we're going to rejoice, it must be in this day. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and what? Be glad in it. Amen? Joy is, is, that is truly of the Holy Spirit is totally arresting to the world. It really is. It's attractive to those who don't have it. Not because it makes us blind to the realities of life, pretending that turmoil doesn't exist, but others are amazed at this joy because it enables us to stand firm without coming unglued, completely unglued because we're, we know we're in good hands and it's not State Farm. 
or whatever that insurance company is that has that commercial. <laughs> Allstate, that's it. Whatever. Yeah, and, and that's another thing, you know, insurance. Insurance, what insurance can we get from this world? Can't get any assurance or insurance. We're in good hands when we're with Christ, the hands of our Father. Jesus said, no one will be able to snatch them out of the Father's hands, those who hear my voice. Bishop Stephen Neal once remarked that it was because they were a joyful people that the early Christians were able to conquer the world. It's absolutely true, you know. Historical words of Cyprian, a third century bishop of Carthage, who was martyred for his faith, bear this out. Writing to his old friend Donatus, Cyprian explains his own encounter with this joy from another realm. Listen to what he said. This seems a cheerful world, Donatus, when I view it from this fair garden under the shadow of these vines. But if I climbed to some great mountain and looked out over the whole wide lands, you know very well what I would see. Brigands on the high roads, pirates on the seas, in the amphitheaters, men murdered to please the applauding crowds. Under all roofs, misery and selfishness. It is really a bad world, Donatus, an incredibly bad world. Yet in the midst of it, I have found a quiet and holy people. They have discovered a joy which is a thousand times better than any pleasure of this sinful life. They are despised and persecuted, but they care not. They have overcome the world. These people, Donatus, are the Christians, and I am one of them. These things I've spoken to you, said Jesus, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. But take courage, I've overcome the world. The fruit of the Spirit is love, it's joy, and thirdly, it's peace. Peace. What do you think of when you think of peace? This idea of, of behind peace is this tranquility, completeness, unity, and rest. Do you ever think of that when you think of peace? It's a term of security. It doesn't refer to, the biblical term for peace, doesn't necessarily mean the absence of turbulence in life. Interesting thing about that biblical term. Like joy, it's not based on circumstances. The spiritual fruit of peace is the rest and settled state of mind a believer experiences when a person knows that he or she is in a right relationship with God. He knows everything's under God's hand and working for his good because God is sovereignly at work. He or she knows that because of their relationship with God that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Not tribulation, not persecution, not height, nor depth, not even death. Nothing can separate us from his love. Even though the world falls apart around us, as children of God, we're safe. Some years ago, I was in Boston with a friend visiting a woman in our church who has now gone on to be with the Lord. And she was at Deaconess Hospital. Now, if you've ever driven in Boston, you know that the city is not the quintessential picture of peace, right? 
Traffic was thick. Confusion seemed to rule. People were running everywhere. Horns were blaring. Sirens were wailing. Tires were screeching. Engines revving. Lights flashing. And as we drove through the city, I saw anything but peace on the faces of most people on the side of the road. I saw stress. I saw exhaustion. I saw depression. I saw this tenseness as they hurried to the next appointment. But in the midst of all of this thing, I remember it, I won't forget it. The tenseness, all of this stress, there was one small woman scurrying down the street holding a little baby just like you are right now. And that little baby was sound asleep in the midst of all this confusion and this whole scene. That's the picture that God wants to give us of the fruit of the Spirit that is peace. Peace in the midst of turbulence. Not a lack of turbulence, but peace in the midst of it. Quiet rest in the epicenter of chaos. You have that in your life? Because that's a picture of a person who knows the peace of Christ. The scripture says that he is our peace in Ephesians 2, verse 14. He calls us to peace as well. He said, let not your hearts be troubled. He told his disciples. When did he tell them this? In the midst of his pending arrest. He said, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. See, the world needs to believe in God. And the world needs to trust in Jesus whom God has sent. You know why? Because life is hard, right? Life is hard, and it probably is not going to get any easier. Racial tension gets stronger. Injustice becomes more common. Religion becomes more bigoted because Jesus' peace is missing. How many genocides have occurred because there is no peace between nations? How many homicides because there is no peace between neighbors? How many suicides because there is a lack of peace in the human heart? Hey, listen, before you can have peace, the peace of God in your life, you need to be at peace with God in your heart. It's that simple. And that means coming to Jesus because there is no other way. He himself is our peace. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives, Jesus said, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Christ is the source of all true peace. Someone has said that perfect peace can only be found in a cemetery. Ever hear that before? Quite right. Really is. Perfect peace can only be found in a cemetery. Because perfect peace of heart, mind, and soul is found through an empty tomb of the risen Christ. Amen? How much are you at peace with your life right now? And what are you focused on? Even though the taxes aren't looking great, even though the car is beyond repair, even if you wonder where the next meal's coming from, do you have a joy deep inside of you that can't be snuffed out regardless of your predicament? You exhibit love, for example, when love is the last thing you feel like giving 
when the recipient is completely undeserving. See, those are just three of the things that the Holy Spirit wants to produce in your life and mine on a daily basis. The fruit of the Spirit, Paul says, is love, joy, and peace. Are they evident and increasing in our lives? Those are the spiritual, I call them the spiritual virtues of the fruit of the Spirit. Let's move on a little bit to the relational virtues of this fruit. See, if love, joy, and peace are the qualities that characterize our relationship with God, then patience, kindness, and goodness, well, they paint a picture of how we relate to others while under the Spirit's control, our relationship with everybody else. For instance, patience. Everybody loves this one. Pray for patience, right? You, you heard that. Patience is one of those qualities of Christ-likeness that we always expect of others, but very rarely demand of ourselves. Yeah? Means to be long-fused instead of short-tempered. So the King James Version translation of this word, long-suffering, is very, very accurate. Means to suffer long. And it's picturesque of what the term means. To be patient is to endure under affliction or under injuries or circumstances that cause us physical and emotional pain. It includes holding back our anger when people are irritating or just downright cruel to us. You know that, at that EGR person that we've talked about here before, that extra grace required person that you have to deal with? <laughs> Patience is... is Here's a good term. Patience is spirit-induced toleration. How do you like that? Spirit-induced toleration. That's what it is. And it's something we all need. And it's something we all need to show. If you think you have the spirit-filled life mastered, this will be your downfall every single time. Every time. I think patience is God's ace in the hole you know, so to speak, when we begin to think that we have this Christ-following thing under our control, he pulls out that one. Yeah. Story goes that a man once told the great preacher, C.H. Spurgeon, that he'd been sinless for at least two months. So Spurgeon, eager to test his quality, trod heavily on his toe. And immediately that man's proud record came to an inglorious end. <laughs> How do you react when people test you? To people who are constantly in your face. To people who raise your blood pressure. You want to strike out. You want to get them back. You want to make them pay. You, you, because they deserve it. I mean, we can only endure so much as a human being, am I right? No argument there. But that's the whole idea, the fruit of the Spirit, right? Superabundant patience is not possible for us on our own. No matter how hard we try to generate it, sooner or later, everyone is pushed to the breaking point. Some people have to endure more affliction in their lives than what seems to be their share. No question about it. But God is able to give us the strength through His Spirit. Amen? Amen. Say it. God is able. God is able. One of my pet peeves, my biggest pet peeves, is when people quote this verse. 
God won't give you more than you can handle. Ever heard that? I heard that this week. The guy I went to see with ALS, I was talking to his wife as I was about to leave, and she was struggling with this whole thing. Why is God allowing this to happen and all this stuff? And she says, I know people tell me all the time, God, is, God won't give me more than I can handle. I won't give you more than you can handle, I said. That is so wrong. So misquoted. Who, where in the Bible did it ever say that? God gives us more than we can handle all the time. If God wouldn't give us more than we could handle, we would never be conformed to the image of Christ and we wouldn't need the Holy Spirit of God to produce fruit in our lives. What the scripture says is God won't give you more than you can handle without also providing the way of escape or without also providing the strength which God supplies so that you can bear it. That's what the scripture says. What you need to do is focus and rely on Christ and then you'll be able to endure what we are humanly in capable of. Colossians chapter 1, verse 11, Paul says, we also pray that you will be strengthened with his glorious power so that you will have all the patience and endurance you need. Paul prayed for it. Ephesians chapter 3. Let me just read this to you. Ephesians chapter 3. You know the scripture. You've heard it before, I'm sure, most of you. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. He's the one that's able and he makes us able. God is able, we are not. We trust him, he gives us the power to do it in the the ability to let things roll off of us is not in us as human beings. That's why it's called the fruit of the Spirit. Patience, as I said before, is love's endurance. But it is also something we have a personal responsibility to pursue. Don't just think you just sit there and let God give it to you. You have to pursue it as well as followers of Christ because it is characteristic of Christ himself. In Colossians 3, again, Paul wrote these words to the Colossians. He said, since God chose you to be the holy people whom he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. You must make allowance for each other's faults. Forgive the person who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. I remember watching the evening news some years ago and a sweet elderly woman who was a survivor of Auschwitz was on and, and it, she was talking, they were interviewing her and she did not display the slightest bit of bitterness. And this is, I took this quote away. I remember writing it down because it was so profound. She said, it is better to suffer in injustice than to commit one. Listen to what Peter urged a group of people in his day to do. In, second, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. 
For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. You've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, we are healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Here in verse 23... Verse 23 is the secret of patience. You want the secret of patience? Here it is, verse 23. Entrusting ourselves to God, to him who judges righteously. That's the only way that you will be able to show patience, when you entrust yourself to God. That's what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. God is slow to anger. Are you? I'm not usually you're thinking, you've got to be kidding. Are you, are you really serious about this? Not kidding. If you struggle in this area, here's a prayer that you can pray. Psalm 86, verses 14 to 17. Write it down. If you're an impatient person, pray this prayer like the psalmist. The arrogant are attacking me, O God. A band of ruthless men seeks my life. Men without regard for you. But you, O Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Turn to me and have mercy on me. Grant your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Give me a sign of your goodness that my enemies may see it and be put to shame. For you, O Lord, have helped me and comforted me. That's a prayer. You can pray. Kindness. In a word, it's tender concern for others. It's the genuine desire in a believer's heart to treat others as God has treated us. And how has God treated you? Gently? I think so. With respect. With thoughtful consideration. It's the delicate ministering of love, someone once said. You know, love is patient. Love is kind. And so those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, Paul writes, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. It's this distinct quality that Christ had when he dealt with sinners. He was kind, wasn't he? It's easy to be harsh to people we label as sinners, forgetting that we ourselves still sin. How kind and gentle has Christ been to you in your particular state? His gentleness attracts even small children. Having seen the lack of kindness that some Christians show toward unbelievers, it's no wonder that they want no part at all with the church. 
But in 2 Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all. Kind. Able to teach. Patient when wronged. And with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. One author wrote, in our age of guided missiles and misguided men, there is this desperate need for us to learn how to share gentleness. It seems strange that in an age when we reach the moon, bounce signals off far planets and receive pictures from whirling satellites that we have great difficulty communicating tenderness to each other. How's your kindness quotient? You know what? The tender heart's a broken heart. Go back to that prayer that I mentioned some months ago in another series that we were preaching. Pray that prayer that God would break your heart with the things that break his. Goodness. Well, goodness is the moral and spiritual excellence of things. It's not a natural quality, again, of a man. Jesus said to the rich young ruler, no one's good except God alone. But a characteristic of the redeemed life, it's love in action. The fruit of this spirit, it characterizes us as people who are like God. And goodness basically is the other side of the coin of kindness and goodness. They're like two sides of of the same coin. I think of terms kindness and goodness, I can't help but recall an incident that took place in the life of one of our members. And um, she's here, so I'll try not to name her and embarrass her. But years ago, almost a decade ago now, she went to Tampa, Florida to visit her daughter at Thanksgiving, and on the return trip, she landed in Atlanta, Georgia to switch planes. As she went into the restroom, she noticed a young African-American cleaning attendant, and the girl was absolutely beautiful in appearance. Beautiful. Off to the side of the room, Large group of people were gathered around paying attention and making a fuss about a cute little dog. And this person looked at the cleaning girl and realized that most people were more interested in that puppy dog than they were about this girl. And moved by the scene, she wondered whether or not she should tip this young girl. So she smilingly approached the girl, holding out a dollar bill and gave it to her saying, I hope this won't insult you. The young girl looked deeply into this person's eyes, making her feel a little bit uneasy. And she said, I know you. The words nearly knocked this this woman over because it was her first time in Atlanta. There's no possible way that this young girl could have known her. And the young girl continued, said, I know you. You're the Christian. God bless you. You know, that story both convicts me and compels me to be more attentive to what kind of portrait I'm presenting to my Savior, you know, of my Savior to those around me. What are we showing to the world? The fruit of true kindness and its resulting goodness exhibits Christ to the world. In fact, all these fruit exhibit Christ to the world. That's the whole point, right? Proverbs 19.22 says, Kindness makes a man attractive. It flows from a heart that's full of God's goodness. So then, Paul says just a few verses later in Galatians 6.10, While we have opportunity, let us do good to all men and women, 
and especially to those of the household of faith. Let me leave you with this question. Are you and I doing any good to anybody for the sake of Jesus Christ? I pray that we are. And if we're not, well, hey, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness are the things he wants to work out in you right now. And the minute you walk out this door, let's pray. Lord, thanks so much for your Holy Spirit and the power that you have given us through him to exhibit love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and goodness. I pray, our Father, that we would be attentive to these things this week, that we would willingly submit ourselves to your control, that we'd focus on who Jesus is and allow his character through the Spirit to flow through us. That's what's going to change the world, Lord. You've said it. May they see our good works and glorify you who art in heaven, our Lord and our King. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen.